Hello and welcome to another episode of the Anna Domini podcast. This afternoon, I'm excited to bring you a guest whom I first met three years ago on a leadership in urban transformation course that I did. Uh, he was a guest lecturer for that course and the insights that he shared about the world that Jesus lived in and how that social system produced the text we read was one of my highlights of that course um, and really shook my understanding, particularly of the parables that Jesus told. Um, so Professor Van Eck uh, took commonly held interpretations of some of these passages of scripture and blew our assumptions out of the water as he revealed how, for the most part, these are not stories about God or the character of God, but are actually symbols of social transformation, a transformed and alternative world, which Jesus termed as the kingdom of God. So I encourage you to lean in with an open heart and mind, be ready to be challenged and inspired as we dive into the world of Jesus and begin to unpack some of the dynamics that produce some of the most biting examples of social critique at its finest, straight from the mouth of Jesus as he goes in on the first century oppressive political, religious and social context. Enjoy. Uh, thank right. you so much for joining us on this particular episode of the Anna Domini podcast. So um, maybe you can give yourself a, just a brief intro, just so our listeners know who we're speaking to this afternoon. All right. I'm, I'm Ernest van Eck. I'm a, uh, I'm a professor at the University of Pretoria. I, I lecture New Testament Studies, and I have a serious interest in, 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 in uh, looking for the meaning of texts, from a very specific method that I'm using. I'll say, say, say something about it a bit later today. But for me, it is very, very important that when we read scripture, we read and apply it contextually, which means that I believe that scripture says something for today. It says something for the environments we live in. It says something about our social problems, about our social ills. Uh, the Bible is not only about faith. It is about faith, but it's also about stuff that happens on, 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 in, our, in our suburbs, in our offices, where we, we, where we are busy relaxing at the gym or whatever. It is applicable to each and every situation in which we find ourselves, especially where there is social injustice, and other ills that I think the Bible really addresses. So that's me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much yeah. for that introduction, yeah. uh, Professor. And so you mentioned how the Bible isn't just a spiritual thing, but uh, it's something that can really help us be able to understand and interpret some of the things that are happening today. And you mentioned particularly um, social injustice. So I'd love to ask a question in relation to how then we can read the Bible in a way that will bring up some of these concepts that you're talking about. Uh, so maybe please walk us through some of the various ways of reading scripture. Traditionally speaking, and, and, and I'm going to, to be very technical in two sentences and then normal in the rest of the sentences. So uh, technically speaking, people will say that there are three ways in which you can interpret scripture. And they would say the first one is the historical, historical critical method. Listen to the jargon. It is, the, it is a synchronic reading or a reader aesthetic reading. Those are the three readings immediately you will, you're supposed to tell the students in your class. But, but, there's a, but there's an easier way to explain this. The Bible and the 27 documents in the New Testament are all sets of communication. And if you communicate, there's always an author, there's a text, and there's a reader or a listener. So these three 
ways of interpreting scripture I've referred to earlier actually focuses on these three things. This, is, this, this actually was Socrates. Many, many moons ago that said communication is about an author or a sender, a message or a text or a listener or a reader. Now, in the beginning, when people started to read the texts of the Bible, they said one must focus on the author. Who was the author? When was the text written? For whom was it written? Who were the first listeners? Uh, um, uh, what was the social, cultural environment of, 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 of the author or maybe mm -hmm. the listeners? And, and this, this is what we call a historical critical, or it means actually you are looking for stuff behind the text, mm -hmm. stuff that generated the text. Then people in the, in the 1970s said no, Sometimes you simply do not know enough about these things. So we must look at the text itself. So say, for example, see, see the Gospel of Mark, for example, as a picture or, 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 or as an as a, as a, as a advertisement uh, that, that you can see alongside the road, a logo or something, and interpret it as such. Don't ask who, who wrote this or who was the one, who was the artist who did this or for whom was it intended. So you just read the text itself and look if, this, if there are arguments, is there a certain structure in the text or whatever. And then people started to say, but listen, remember there's also a reader. And then the pendulum swung to what we call reader, uh, reader reception, reader receptionist reading. In other words, now you are, in the previous one, you were in the text, now you are in front of the text and you ask yourself a simple question, when I read this text, what is this text telling me as an individual? And, and, and now you have, you have readings like, I have a feminist interest in the text, or I have a materialistic interest in the text. So, so these are the three, say, behind the text, in the text, and then in front of the text. But then in the 1990s, a very exciting new method was developed. People saying, but there is an approach, there is a method that can be seen as an umbrella that, that, that first looks at the author when it was written. It, it takes cognizance of the text, if there's a strategy in the text, but it also takes very serious the reader in a new context. And this reader in the new context must make very sure that when he or she reads the text, that the text is not read, either from an anachronistic or from, from an ethnocentric a perspective. And, 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 and for this, this new method developed using anthropology, cultural anthropology, using sociology, we developed certain methods, certain that we use to develop models and theories. Now, if you are a native to a text, if you are a native to a specific cultural environment, for example, if you're part of the gangs uh, uh, on, the, on the Cape Flats, if you if, if you're part of a certain group or whatever, they, 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 they would use certain lingo, for example. It's, for example, South Africans say, I'll see you now, I'll see you now, now, I'll see you later. Someone that's an American or a British piece, a person that can speak English do not understand that because they are not part of the culture, but we as natives to that. Now, this is the same thing. We are not part and parcel of that social world of the New Testament. Now, for example, we've realized there are a lot of things. There are stuff like patronage and stuff like purity and, 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 and honor and shame and status. You have to be, 
you have you have first to be informed. So the idea here is you must first understand the social context before you can understand the text. And this is what is called this is called social scientific criticism. That's not important. But this but 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 but, uh, but the whole idea is let us first look at the social context. And then you ask questions, why did this happen? Why is this person acting in this way? Why this reaction? Why is why why this reaction to this action? Uh, what is happening here? Why are they doing this? It seems to be a norm. For us, it seems to be it's foreign. It's not part of our culture. So we ask those questions. And when you, when you ask those questions, then you can try to become a native to a cultural world, although you are not part of the cultural world. So the, the, these are more or less the, the, the ways in which one can approach a text. Fair. It's a long answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you said a lot there, uh, Professor, but I mean, it's great and it's, and it's great uh, background <coughs> to know. Um, and I'm no. more fascinated by, you know, the umbrella approach that you mentioned that kind of like came through no. in the 90s and you mentioned terms like ethnocentrism and anachronism. So maybe for two minutes or so, uh, do you want to tell us maybe what the benefit is? I mean, you already mentioned some of the benefits in terms of really allowing you to immerse yourself in the, no. in the context. Um, but maybe tell us wh why such a, an approach is quite useful when we really want to know, right. yeah, what what Jesus yeah. was saying and what he meant when he said yeah. the things that he said. No, Cecilia, that the, um, uh, you know, if, if you look at all these, all these methods, all these possible, all these possibilities, actually one, one cannot say, you know, there are benefits or disadvantages because it is actually, you put on a certain lens. So if you ask, for example, let me use a, let me use a very common example. If, if, if you ask someone, how many, how many cars are parked there? And you say, they're all blue. You ask one question, but you get an answer that's not possible. So if you ask how many cars are there, you will get a specific answer. If you ask what color are these cars, you get a specific answer. And this is the way, same way it works with, the, with these methods. If you, <clears throat> for example, ask questions regarding the author, you will get answers on the author, but not, but not really on is there any economic disadvantage people in this text or can we pick up any social injustice in the text or the way one can address? If you ask st stuff about the structure, the, 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 the synchronic, synchronic uh, um, uh, approach, you won't get an answer about, you know, what is this text doing to me? So, so if you put on a lens, you ask specific questions and therefore you will get specific, specific answers. Therefore, it's very, very important before you start reading a text, you must ask yourself, what am I looking for? Uh, do I want this text to, 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 to help me to grow in my spirituality? Or do I want this text to, to see if, if, if it addresses patriarchy or feminism or, or gender-based violence? Or am I merely interested in the history? Uh, what, how, does, how, how did the people eat? What did they eat or whatever? So, so it, is a, it, it, is, it is really a question of, you, you put on this lens, you put on one set of glasses, and, and those glasses will help you to see specific aspects of, this, of the text, include some and exclude others. What is the gospel? How do we talk about the gospel? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And particularly for Anna Domini, what does it mean to follow Jesus in Africa? One of my favorite authors, Rachel Held Evans, once wrote in her book called Inspired, 
much has been made about the value of rendering the gospel into a single digestive aphorism. She goes on to say, but it's fruitless to try and turn the gospel into a statement when God so clearly gave us a story, or more precisely, a person. In this season of Anna Domini, I'd like us to pay closer attention to that story, to the story of the person of Jesus, the life that he lived, the spaces he inhabited, the words that he said. When we talk about the gospel, I think there's a temptation to want to summarize it in a tweet or some other concise statement. We have sinned and fallen short. Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, taking our place to become our sinless, spotless offering so that we could spend eternity with him. This summary, though it can be helpful, reduces the life of Jesus to an interesting backstory, but not so relevant to the work of salvation or managing sin. But Jesus didn't just come to die. He lived. And before he died, he went to a table where he sat with people he had no business being around, where he broke bread with them and shared stories, poured wine, forgave, announced an alternative kingdom. What would happen if we took seriously the way that Jesus lived? That's the journey I'd like us to go on for these next few episodes of Anno Domini. So please come along with us. Stay up to date with all our latest offerings, videos, podcasts, and other content, which we will post up on our social media platforms. So make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and of course, the famous refrain, do like, share, comment, and subscribe. All the good things to spread this message far and wide. Thank you so much for joining us for the ride and looking forward to going on this journey with all of you. So, uh, yeah, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of the context of Jesus. You know, you mentioned a little bit that it was an advanced agrarian society under the control of the Roman Empire, first century Palestine. Let's maybe walk through that. Yeah, yeah. You see, this 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 is a very, very good and I think the most important question you can ask when it comes to read a text. Let me first start by saying, one must always remember that Jesus was a person of flesh and blood. And he lived in a specific environment. And even if you see him as a lay preacher or whatever, think for a moment that you have someone speaking about stuff that has nothing to do with his social environment. It is simply not possible. Therefore, the opposite must be taken very seriously. And that is, you must try to understand what Jesus did in terms of his environment, being influenced, being influenced by his environment, but also trying to influence his environment. Now, this environment, I, I, I normally use a, 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 a metaphor uh, that was, that is not, it's not my idea, that's the idea of inter, one of the uh, well-known international New Testament scholars, Inti Wright, that says, when Jesus was born, there were three winds blowing in Palestine. There was a wind coming from the north, a wind uh, coming from the south, and there was a wind in Galilee. And that is, it was the Roman Empire, it was a temple state, and Jesus tried to say something about the kingdom of God. So there was the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of the temple, and, and Jesus said, but there's a different kingdom, a better one, and that's the kingdom of God. Now, remember, Jesus was born in what we normally call Roman Palestine, which means that Rome, uh, Rome was in charge 
Now, Palestine, I think it's important to say that it was Galilee and it was Judea. Jesus was born in Galilee. Galilee was, 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 was ruled by Herod Antipas. He was a client king of Rome. I'll get to that now. And in, 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 in Judea, in Jerusalem, there was uh, um, uh, the temple elite ran Judea by grace of Rome. Remember now, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was the biggest empire ever. And Jesus, Jesus is born, as you said, in an advanced, advanced agrarian society, which means it's aristocratic, which means it's a society that consists of haves and have-nots, of elites and non-elites. But these haves and these elites, they, they, they consisted of a merely 2% of the whole population. There was, no, there, was, there was no middle class. And these elites normally, uh, I, I, I could even say exclusively, lived in the cities. And they were very, very rich. And they didn't, they, they, they had a, a despised labor, manual labor. But, but in spite of that, they were the rich people. They had close to 65% of all the wealth belonged to them. And how, and how, did, they did, how did they do that? They taxed the people. Remember, if, 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 if Herod Antipas rules Galilee by, by the grace of Rome, uh, Augustus, who is the emperor, he's, he wants his cut. So, so what happens is the peasants, the non-elite, they work the land and, 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 and it's maize and, and it's olives and it's figs sometimes, but that's what they do. So what do you do? You come and you tax the peasants. So Herod taxes the peasants to give to pay the taxes to Augustus, the emperor. But then, then Herod Antipas has got his own bowling projects, he's got whatever. So a second layer of taxes comes from, it's taken from, the, from, from it's, it's called the so-called surplus of the land, but there was no surplus. And then the local elites, they also looked for their cut. And then on top of that, the temple elite also looked for the tithes for the temple to keep the temple run. So in the end, it means that these peasants, they, they lived under the level of subsistence. They were very poor people. If there was one bad uh, uh, harvest, if it was one year that there wasn't enough rain, whatever, these people, they lost their land. They, they, they didn't make it. And, and you can read it in the New Testament. If you look at the parables, for example, you'll see that in, in Mark 4, there's an owner sowing his land, the parable of the, parable of the sower. When people lost their land, they normally became tenants on land they used to. Because if you couldn't pay the taxes, if you were not, were not, were not in, if you if you were not in a situation to pay the taxes, you normally it was possible to get a loan at a very high interest rate, and those loans actually was was aimed that people can confiscate your land. Uh, it, it was the moment you took on a loan, it actually meant expropriation. That's what it meant. So when you lose your land. You become a tenant normally, and that's Mark 12. Think about the parable of the tenants. If you didn't make it as a tenant, you became a day laborer. Think of the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Mark 20. And if you didn't make that in the end, you, be, you become like Lazarus in Luke 16, who is a beggar in the city, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, so it, 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 was a, it was a tough world. It was a difficult world. And because you had no political political power or any political input as a peasant, for example, it was 
You couldn't, you, you couldn't work yourself up the ladder by way of speaking. If you were a peasant, you were a peasant. And, and Jesus was born as a peasant. He was born in Galilee as part of this peasantry. And he saw all these social injustices. He saw everything. He experienced everything. He, Jesus was a, the Greek word is a tektuan. Um, uh, it means he was, he, he, he was a handyman. People sometimes say, oh, he was a carpenter, but the Greek word means he was a carpenter also. But he was a handyman. He could work with rock and with everything, whatever. So Almost he like was a peasant. construction worker in our oh, modern something age. Something like that. No. And this is and 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 this is this is this is the world in which Jesus grew up, and this is the world in which he started his preaching. Wow, Professor, thank you so much for that uh, beautiful kind of uh, overview of the world that Jesus lived no. in. You know, at, at, at Anna Domini, we, we encourage a life of praxis, uh, you know, a life that is committed to reflecting upon our world, you know, its underlying values, dominantly held narratives and our own blind spots, really, and then act accordingly. So basically, it's a life of, you know, reflection. And, and this life of praxis is based upon a model, which I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, called the praxis cycle, the pastoral cycle, um, which is basically made up of four moments, right, which move practitioners from insertion to social analysis from theological reflection to pastoral planning i mean there's more information um on our of this file on our website for for our listeners but during advent season we looked at a little bit of insertion you know what it would mean for or what it meant for jesus to come to earth and be one of us and what it may mean for us to be immersed in a particular context or environment as he was um, in our world and and as mentioned before you know looking at jesus's life and the way that he lived we, we can almost see that move from insertion to social analysis, you know, a, a part of the cycle which broadens our analytical eye towards a whole social system. So like you just said, you know, Jesus saw all these social injustices um, and was exposed to the, the social injustice of, yeah, the, the Roman politics, right, living under Roman the empire rule and, and temple politics and, and, and how that also worked. And of course, him being born as a peasant. So maybe we can, you know, looking at that whole, idea then of like you know praxis and particularly social analysis i mean what way do you think we see jesus doing social analysis in his life no uh, uh Shini, I'm, I'm i'm going to take one step backwards and i'm going to make an introduction and then i'm going to explain it using practical examples perfect close to ephesus there is a inscription that was discovered it's called the prene inscription now on this inscription, we read the following. It is a it is an inscription. It's actually his birthday wishes for Augustus, which is the emperor. Now, the, the, these local elites, of course, to get his favor, have the stone inscripted with, with more or less the following. Augustus, the son of God, who is the beginning of good news. He has brought salvation because he is the savior of the world, and he's the son of God, and he must be blessed. Listen to all these words they are using. The, the Greek word for gospel is eongelion. That's the word being used. The Greek word for son of God is eos to theos. That's the word being used in that description. Now, what, what, what does it say? It says first that Augustus was seen as, as the son of God, it, it all started because it was believed that after a, after the emperor died, he was taken to the gods. And, and, and after, and it's a very nice story, it's called the Julian Star, I'll be short, but, but that after, after Augustus uh, 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 on the battlefield, 
stop Marcus Anthony and Cleopatra uh, getting a games. There was a there was a meter, there was a comet, and and, and it was just after Julius Caesar was killed on the Senate floor, and Augustus was his adopted child. He was the son of of Julius Caesar, and then Augustus said, "You see." There's, there's Julius Caesar, he's going to the gods. He's a god now. And if he's a god and I'm his son, I am the son of God. This is where it started. Now, and he's the one that brought in the golden era. He's the savior of the world. He saved the world by, 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 by winning the battle against Marcus, uh, Mark Anthony, all this kind of stuff. And now let me give you two examples. See how Mark starts. Mark 1 verse 1 says, this is the beginning same, the same language as in that inscription of the good news, same as the inscription of whom? Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wow. So, so that is, that is politics. Remember, Jesus lived in a world where, where politics and economy and religion, you couldn't take those, those things apart. And, and then Jesus says himself in Mark 1.15, he says, repent. Says, think differently and believe the gospel, my gospel, my good news. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. Now, remember, let, let me give you, and, and, and when Jesus, when he, when he, in, in, his, in his preaching and his, in his exorcisms, in his healings, but maybe we can do something about that in, an, in the next session, what his healings meant. What is exorcisms mean? How can you understand this? For example, let's take Mark 5. I'll be quick on this. When Jesus, that person that he, that he drives out the demons, uh, 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 the, one, the, 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 the one from Hadara, then text says the legion, and he drives those pigs. Because legion was, the symbol for them was the pig. So actually, he's saying, I'm driving out the Romans out of, out of Galilee. And I'm, I'm, I'm clearing up uh, all these injustices or whatever. But now remember, Romans, status is important. Patronage is important. Patron clients is important. It's very important reciprocity. If I invite you, you have to invite me. These are all pivotal values of that society. And with that, also remember the temple, they believe that God was holy. And God's holiness is in separation. And, and so the, you've got pure and impure people. So if you, for example, uh, if you've got leprosy or if you, if you are bleeding or if you spit or whatever, anything that goes over an orifice or a boundary makes you impure. Now, listen to what Jesus does. Now, now let me give you an example. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed, you're not, you're not allowed, a mustard seed was planted in a garden. You're not allowed to plant two different kinds of seeds. Then it's mixed. It's impure. So what does he say? He says, the kingdom is impure. The kingdom consists of impure people. He says, a woman takes a bowl of flour. She adds leaven. What has happens? It makes that impure. So he keeps on going. He says, there's a man. He invited people to a dinner. He lead people. They didn't show up. So what does he do? Yeah, he takes, takes the people that is the cities, the impure people. In the end, there's this one huge happy party of impure people, and that and, and that is that, that is the kingdom. Take, take the good Samaritan. There's, there's, there's this hostility between these two ethnicities, the, the Jews and the, or the Israelites and, and, and Samaritans. And this is what you do. You, you you help one. Very, very, very good example is the prodigal son. 
remember if you were a father if you take your your your, your inheritance and you leave you you shame your you shame your father honor and shame honor was the most pivotal value in that in in, in that world you also shame the village so when in which you wow. live so so when when he comes back we normally say oh but this is the father runs because he helps him he invites him back but the father is running to protect the son from the village and when he brings him into the village the village think ha oh, now he's going to give him a good hiding and what happens he's having a party <laughs> so fathers in the kingdom is different from fathers whatever and mm. we can we can go on we can take the sower in the end there's a bit left If you leave that little bit that you've got left for gleaning, for example, Jesus says it will be 30, 60, and 100 fold. If we share the little bit we have mm. amongst those who are oppressed, among the non, the non, the, 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 the don't haves, mm. the, the have nots, then we are practice, then we practice the kingdom in a practical sense. Mm. And I believe if you read the parables, for example, from a very specific perspective and you you take cognizance of the social values of that world then you will see that Jesus attacked questioned all those social values one by one by say by saying the kingdom of god everything everybody is welcome everybody is equal where there is no such thing as an impure person where no one has got more status than another one We we look one another. We we look after one another. We we support one another. This kingdom is much better than either kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of the temple. And 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 the moment you read a text like that, remember, you read the text behind the very specific political world of Jesus. In terms of the economic the economy in the time of Jesus, in terms of the social cultural structures in the time of Jesus, this is. Some people say this is what can what one can call a materialistic reading, but it means you take these things seriously. You ask yourself, in what context? What does a saying? What does any kind of saying mean in that context? Sometimes, most of times, what Jesus said was explosive mm. in those in 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 that context. Mm. I mean, I was going to ask a kind of a, a so what question of why is it so important to take seriously the social world of the parables? But I feel like you've already answered that because, like you said, when we understand what Jesus was saying in his own time, we can really understand, like you said, how explosive and how what a new world and really this kingdom that he was really opening up. And you know, if it's opening up this kingdom, what does it mean for us today? It also means that we should practice and can practice and and should practice, right? These you know, kingdom economics, a new way of sharing, a new way of living, a new way of seeing each other. But but, but yeah, maybe maybe there are then some people who still are a little bit questioning. Maybe a, a question is, you know, isn't the Bible so multifaceted and beautifully rich that I can use it for my own spiritual edification and moral direction without doing the contextual work? You know, surely the Bible or Jesus isn't limited by context or contextual understanding. How would you answer that person? It will be a very long discussion. <laughs> I, I, I believe that. Uh, let me go back to the word gospel. You know, you have people that say that say. Don't mess with these kind of ideas and these approaches or whatever. Simply, please, just preach the gospel. Yes, yes, yes. I cannot support. I cannot say. I don't have words to say how correct that person is. Why? Let's go back to the meaning of the word gospel. 
The word gospel is not that you are saved by Christ, you must receive the Spirit. Also that, don't, don't, don't make a mistake, I'm not excluding that. Right. But the gospel, the gospel was the good news. And the good news was, there was good news for people who were poor. Mm. There, was, there was good news for people who were hungry. There mm. were good news for people who were, who, who were discriminated against, excluded. Mm. That was, that was the first meaning of the good news, of the gospel, the Evangelion. That word in the beginning had a political meaning, not a religious kind of meaning. So, so, so we must, sometimes we think that the gospel is something that happens in your head. You believe certain things, you, right. must, you, you, you must ascend to certain statements or whatever. But, but, but to, there's a difference between faith and religion. It, in religion, what we do is we go to church and we dress in a certain way and we have right. the sacraments, that kind of, and, that, and then that becomes faith, but that's not faith. Faith means, the original meaning of faith means that I, 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 I lies myself, I, I, I support you. A, it, it means it was a relation. In other words, it was acceptance. If Jesus says, believe in my, my, my good news, he says, he says, align yourself with my good news. That means do what I do. It's not a thing that only happens in your head, but your hands mm. and your feet are so important mm. when, when, you, when you are a faithful person. Therefore, I believe it means that we have to, we, we must believe certain things. I, I mean, Jesus on the cross is my Savior. There's no question about it. Right. But, but, but that cross calls onto me. Mm. It impels us to live and act in a certain no. way. That's it, yes. We spoke earlier about this. So, and, and you asked me the question, so, so what are the few points I believe are important when you read Scripture? What are those things that are important? And I always say the first and foremost important thing is do not assume. Right. Do not assume that you know what this meaning is. Be very careful of the, and I'll, I'll, give you the, I'll give you an example at the end of our, I'll give you a very good example. Do not assume that, 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 that this this meaning of the text that you receive by oral tradition, my elders understand the text like this, and my parents and, and the church, do not assume that's always the only and correct interpretation of the text. Get good resources. Read, 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 and read, and keep on reading. Do not dismiss certain things in principle. Uh, at least be open to, to, to think differently. Uh, be open to change your mind. And, and, and I always say, don't be a fan of Jesus. Be a follower of Jesus. There's a huge difference. Right. So, but this guy, uh, he, was, he was really against violence. That is wonderful. That is why I say, when you read the Bible, do not read the Bible. Do not engage with the Bible if you are not willing to engage in your community. Wow, okay. Do not, do not engage in just have a kind of academic or a spiritual or whatever experience with the Bible if you are not willing to engage in the social injustices in your community. Because every page of the Bible says something about social injustice. There is not one page of the Bible we will not pick up something about social injustice in any kind of whatsoever. So, so it, it, it is, it, you, must be, you must be an engaged reader. And that means that you... Not only your mind, not only your brain or whatever, but your whole body, you as a person, must be involved. Because reading the Bible 
is serious stuff. Mm, sure. Read the Bible is to change the world. Mm, wow. To make a difference. I love how you are calling for an embodied faith, a faith that, that does not, you know, disembody us and say it's just, like you said, just an idea or a thought or a creed that you live your life. But you're calling for, yeah, a lived, a lived faith and lived expression of faith. And I love that, yeah. which is why I really want to focus on, yeah, great to focus on the world that Jesus lived in and and the way he lived. Because as Christians, we like to just say he came and then he died. And then we completely miss the fact that he lived and the way that he lived, like you said, was very much involved in his community. And how can we take that example as well? So thank you so much, uh, Professor, for that uh, very beautiful um, kind of explanation. So then, I mean, I'm sure I'm I'm hoping at this stage that, you know, our audience is convinced and gets it like, yes, okay, fine. We need to be engaged. When we read the Bible, we need to know all these things, the text, the reader, you know, the world and all, and all these things kind of like what, what, what practical steps then can you, can you, can you give us, you know, us and the audience, myself included, um, to really encourage us to really begin engaging with scripture in this way. What are three to five points or prompts or questions even that we should start thinking about if we want to, you know, read the Bible in this way? I already made a few references to that, and I said, do not assume that you know what the text means. Get good sources, get good resources. And there are so many free resources available. Um, uh, 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 Bible studies, uh, commentaries, uh, um, uh, uh, read as much as possible. Um, uh, uh, be open to be, be open to, to, to different and new kinds of interpretations, for example. And as I said, if you engage, engage in your community. For me, these four or five things are very, very important. There are, there are other ways also. The, uh, very popular nowadays is to read the Bible from an anti-imperial perspective, to see what, what empire do uh, to, to people and, and, and how Jesus, because Rome was a Roman empire, how Jesus and what he did uh, in either an overt or covert way, open way or an undercover way in which he actually attacked or questioned, questioned uh, the empire. And there's also many ways in, we, in, in which we can question um, uh, um, uh, empire and, we, and, and we, we can actually in the way we live, the way we live can be social commentary that, that, that questions <coughs> what, what was happening around us. You asked me when we had set up this meeting that maybe we must end this conversation by giving an example. And I, I, I'm now going to give you an example. Yes, please. Uh, let's take the parable of the lost sheep. Right. Now, now, interestingly, this parable, we find it in three versions. In Luke 15, it's in Matthew 18, and there's also a version in a non-canonical gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. But we're going to put this aside now. So let's look at let's let, let's look at the at the at the Luke 15 version. Now we know the parable. Jesus sits with the sits with sinners and, 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 and tax collectors. Then the, the Pharisees come and they say, But but you cannot eat with these people. And then Jesus says, There was a shepherd which had the hundred sheep, and one got lost. And he went to look for him. And when he found him, God was happy. And then there was a party at home afterwards. That's more or less the modern version of this parable. Now, normally, if you read that parable, you can take up any commentary, any short commentary, popular, more academic. They will tell you, what is this parable? Oh, this parable says something about God's grace. It says that God is, is, is willing to forgive if you get lost 
or they say, but it's typical of how Jesus came and he looked for the lost, how Jesus is, 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 is finding sinners in this world. This is a typical way of reading the parable from a religious point of view. But let, let, let us look what, what's going on in the parable. Let's ask a few questions of which we have evidence for. There's a lot of evidence. Even give, give people my cell number and I can give them this evidence if they don't believe me. Here's the thing. You can ask the following questions. Who, in that parable, who owes the sheep? We normally think that the sheep belongs to the shepherd, but it's not the case. We have many, many documents that say that the shepherd always was a hireling. There was a contract between him and one or two owners. Yeah. How, no, how big was a flock normally? Very interestingly, a normal flock normally, of all, the, of all the papyri we have, all the evidence, a flock normally is about 1,810 sheep. There's also a few goats in there because the goats can take the way. Sheep, sheep get lost, of course. So, so what we have is we have a, a shepherd, typically size flock of 100, and then, very important, what was the wages of the shepherd? They, they, they didn't earn a lot. They earned little, little, very little money, about 16 drachmas in a month. So normally these contracts were like three months. So let's say he earned about 50 drachmas in three, in three months. What was the worth of the sheep? If, if it was a, 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 a male sheep, it was about 10 drachmas. If it was a female sheep, about 20 drachmas. Now think for yourself, this guy is going to earn 16 drachmas a month. And a female sheep, he gets lost. When the contract is finished, he must give record of what happened. He mm. owes the, uh, the, the owner four drachmas. Mm. So you can think for yourself why this guy is willing to leave 99 behind and go yeah. look for someone. But, right. but here is the thing. Shepherds were despised people. They were seen as with text collectors and the sinners never ever they used as witnesses. They say they were thieves because they drove the sheep over the land of people. They were seen as bandits because they had the staff and the sling or whatever. And they were they always part of banditry. They were seen as people that, that, that commits violence. So they were despised people, despised, despised people. So then, and, and because the sheep, was at the edges of, 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 of civilization or the edges, it was there in the desert or whatever, they normally robbed people. It was easy to rob people. And some of these shepherds did not declare that sheep that, was, that, that were born during that period or whatever. So they were despised. They were, people would say, you do not become a shepherd. Right. Now, think for a moment. You sit in that audience. And you and I, we are now natives to this audience. And we know all these things. And Jesus starts and he says, the kingdom is like a shepherd. We say, no, 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 no. This is not possible. A shepherd cannot be part of the kingdom. Right. And then the shepherd goes whatever. And when the sheep gets lost, what does he do? Mm. Oh, he's going to commit violence. He's going to rob people to make up his money. Now, what does he do? He takes a chance and he goes and finds that. So what happens in the end? When the contract ends and he goes home, he has money to provide, to provide for his family. Mm. So from this point of view, this parable tells, says nothing about God's grace of Jesus looking for sinners. It tells us about practicalities in this world. It tells mm. us, do not commit violence. Violence is not an option. 
always try to make sure that people have enough to eat, that you can act in such a way that people will have enough. The parable tells us so-called despised people, so-called impure people are also part and can also be part of the kingdom. For in the kingdom, everybody, everyone is welcome. God does not discriminate. Mm. And these are social, practical issues I'm talking about now. This is about stereotyping people. This is about helping people. This is about refraining. What? Just think for a moment, violence in our society. How mm. big a problem violence is in our society. Not even gender-based violence, but burglaries, car hijackings, uh, 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 transit heists. How many mm. violence? And this parable says, if you're a Christian, do not commit violence. And because remember, there are many other weapons that we when we in when we at war or when we try to hijack a car, we use weapons, we use guns. But sometimes at home, we use words as guns. Mm. We use we use our body language as guns, and that's also committing violence. We commit gender-based violence in many ways. Just, just, be, just to be patriarchal in what you do and what you say and whatever. You, you are committing gender-based violence because you, you are down-talking females. You say the male, the male sex is more important than the female sex. Mm. So in this way, the parable speaks to, to stuff that is, that, is, that is happening today. It speaks to stuff that can be considered as social injustices. It speaks to a new way of living. It speaks of being part of the kingdom that will make it. And the kingdom is about individual transformation and social transformation. So here, here more or less is an example, Cecilia, but I think uh, what, what, what contribution can this reading make mm. to society, to the church, to, to faith communities, to individuals? I believe that that this approach mm. does make a contribution, a practical, practical contribution that can make that the world we live in a better place. Mm. What you just said reminds me of something that you've written uh, that, you know, the parables of Jesus are not stories just about God. You know, they're not just theocentric, you know, because we love to ascribe God mm. in some of these um, you know, characters, but exactly like you just said, and like you just illustrated, they really are stories about God's kingdom. And in that way, they no. do contribute to social transformation. Yeah, no, 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 no correct. This is the, you something you summed it up very nicely. Uh, it, it is, it is, it is, it is, it's not stories about heavenly things. It is, it, it, it is stories about serious things. <laughs> it is stories about earthly things. It is, it is, it is, doesn't tell us, think, think back. What is the normal uh, interpretation of the parable of the lost sheep? It's about God's Jesus. grace, mm, yeah. about God's forgiveness. So the parables are stories about God, God's characteristics. It's about God's kingdom. It's about practical mm. issues. Anna Domini seeks to be a social impact organization leveraging the power of communication and community to equip and encourage Christian communities to faithfully follow Jesus and live justly in the African context. We aim to produce compelling content which centers Africa's foremost thinkers and rising scholars, writers, and creatives. Our content is aimed at ambitious discourse, 
education and inspiration so as to equip our community to be incarnational and transformational leaders, people who are able to read, reimagine and reconstruct their communities well. Would you like to support the work that we do? Follow us on all our social media platforms and make sure to keep up to date on all our latest issues. We are most active on Instagram and YouTube, so please help grow our community by sharing our content and getting involved in the discussion. Financial giving will also help us operationalize our work for the greatest impact. So if you can, please consider partnering with us. You will see our banking details under the About section of our website. And if you would also like to support our work in other ways, please feel free to get in touch. We would love to hear from you. Um, just to quickly run through those prompts that you said in order for us to start engaging with the text in this way, you said, you know, do not assume um, that we know what the text means. You said that we should read, uh, you know, commentaries, yeah. Bible studies and all of that kind of stuff. You said that we must be open to, you know, different and new interpretations as well. Um, you mentioned a, an example of, you know, a kind of um, anti, uh, you know, empirical mm -hmm. reading of scripture. I think you mentioned. Yes. I also <laughs> said use the resources. I said, use the resources. Use resources and, and to engage in our community. And, and, and let, me, let me close by saying, I again want to iterate. Reading the Bible is a serious thing. Mm. If, you, if, you, if, you in, if you really want to engage with the Bible, you, you, you must be willing to engage in whatever is going on in your community. Because if you engage with the Bible, you engage with a Jesus that was part and partial engaged in his world. If he says, you know, in, 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 in Mark, uh, Mark 8, he says, lay down your cross and follow me. Uh, sacrifice yourself and follow me. And, and, and you'll see, if you can come back to the, you, you can't read the Bible like this because this is what's not political. You must, you must believe only once in the Bible, only once, Jesus says, believe in me. That's John 14. For mm. the rest, he says, follow me. Mm, sure. For the rest, he says, follow me. He doesn't call people, he doesn't call onto people to believe in him. He calls onto people to follow him. Mm. So faith is about what you do with your hands and where, you, and where your feet guides you to be. This is what faith is all about, according to me. Wow, that was a beautiful way to end, uh, you know, our and, and just really captured um, what I want to do with this uh, series, you know, and this theme about Jesus lived. Um, thank you so much, Professor. You've actually written on this subject. Um, do you want to tell us where we can find your book and, you know, some of the things that you have yeah. included in that? Yeah, I, I normally publish open access, which means the moment it's published, it's it's, it's, there's an open access. People can just Google, Google my name and my surname and say, say Google Ernest and Ekin Parable and you will find all my articles that later became a book. Right? There, are, there are some chapters in the book that wasn't published as articles, but you will find most of these articles open access on the internet and they are more than welcome. And if, they, if people are really interested, I can email, them, email it to them if they, if, they, if they really want to. It's not a problem, but it's, it's there for everybody to read. And if they do read it, I would love them to engage with me on what I try to do. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I would definitely right. want to link to that book. Thank you so, so much, Professor, once again. Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We hope that you were challenged and inspired. For more information about Anna Domini, visit anodominimag.com. 
There you will find more of our resources and other ways to support the work that we do. Find us on all the social networks and make sure to keep up to date with our next content. Thanks again and see you next time.